Hey everyone, welcome to By Our Love Podcast. This is Charlton and Natasha. We are a large Christian family living abroad in East Africa, and we would like to invite you along on our journey of faith, hope, and love. On this podcast, we're going to be discussing our Christian walk, kingdom convictions, discipleship, and church planting, as well as international adoption, the ins and outs of daily life as a family of 12, and inviting on special guests that motivate and inspire us. We hope to be a source of encouragement and challenge the status quo. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode number four. This is part two of our interview with Matthew Milioni. If you have not yet listened to episode number one, I would encourage you to do so so that you have the context for today's conversation as we continue to discuss the role of the Christian and the church in the world to be both compelling and convicting, challenging the narrative and loving our fellow man and how we enter into the conflicts of this world. Brother Matthew, what would you say to someone who says the kingdom of God is in the future? You're just making sinners more comfortable in this broken world. It's a waste of time. Yeah, sadly, we hear that from time to time. Um, I, I guess my initial response is to say, well, what was Jesus doing then? You know, what's Jesus doing when he feeds the 5,000? What's Jesus doing when he heals the sick? The church, so going back to that concept of, of the, uh, the church being the, the soul, the church being to the world what the soul is to the body, there's, a, there's something that we're supposed to be doing as the body of Christ that is both compelling and convicting, because that's how Jesus was, right? Like, as he, as he moves about through, through Palestine, and as he speaks and works and does, he's both comforting the weak and challenging the strong. He's upsetting the balance, He's turning things upside down. He's challenging the narrative. And, and there, there's a real war on between the kingdom of darkness and him claiming his right as the king of light. And I don't know how we cannot see that example and follow it. I don't know how we can properly be Christians if we don't take the same view. I'll say one other thing. It's not just the, the divine example of Jesus in, in his own ministry, but it's also to really love the image of God. You know, John says, how can you say you love God who you cannot see if you don't love your brother who you can see? And, and what we ought to properly see as the people of God is that every person we interact with is 
an image bearer of the divine. He's the mark of God on earth. He's the picture of what he wants us to see of his image. You know, you think of how the pagans worshipped. Here's an interesting thought to me, you know, because there's a sense in which the, the Old Testament is iconoclastic. There's not supposed to be images for the Hebrews. But it doesn't stop there. Like, there's a problem with the false gods who are idols, But there's something else about the prophets destroying the idol worshiping among the Hebrews. And it's that God is saying not only these false gods are wrong, but he's also saying all the way back to Genesis, I've already put my image on earth and it's your fellow man. And if someone tells me that I'm uh, cleaning up a world that's going to hell or making sinners comfortable, I have to say, no, I'm sorry. This is the image of God, and God loves his creation, and I love his creation. And not only that, but that actually becomes the defining parameters that Jesus gives in separating the sheep from the goats. And the sheep did not feed the poor and visit the sick and clothe the naked because of some religious obligation, because they were performing some ceremonial duty or paying some religious debt for their salvation. They did it because they loved people. And I, I can't fathom a Christianity that doesn't love its fellow man. And we don't even have to, to guess about that. Like, yes. I mean, this is, this is Jesus himself saying Black and white here. chapter and verse. <laughs> right. Matthew 25. Here's what it's going to be. Here's the criteria. Um, there's no, it's like we have the answers yep. to the test beforehand. And, and I think that's key to understanding, um, not that, but what you had mentioned about everyone being made in the image of God. I mean, we have to ground everything back in the creation narrative and understanding the work that Jesus is doing, even in the fact of the incarnation. I mean, we could go in so many different directions from this point right now, just talking about the significance of what the incarnation means for all of humanity and reclaiming and restoring and regaining access to things that were lost um, in the fall and through Adam uh, but the looking at what sin is that that sin is a it's a subhuman condition it's a, it's a it, the dehumanizing effects of sin in the world and Jesus is stepping into that he's not saying well sorry it's all messed up and he ex- his expectation is that his followers are going to continue on this ministry of confronting the brokenness of the world and and that's i think that's what we see in Matthew 25 is he, those are tangible ways to confront the the sin and the corruption and the injustice that that is going on on the individual level but even on the corporate level like it's not this future dispensation that all of a sudden when Jesus comes then all these kingdom principles and values and laws at that point then we need to love our neighbor like who's our who's our enemy and who's who is it in the that we need to, yeah right there there it just well, it's not there that's exactly i think the right way to think of Jesus's promise that greater works than these shall you do when the comforter comes because um, because Jesus' ministry is limited to one 
body in space and time. And the ministry of Christ when he was on earth is bounded by that physical limitation of being in the flesh. And as the, as the paraclete, as the comforter comes and connects all of his kingdom throughout the growing, spreading movement of the gospel, now this work is being done a thousand times a day all across the world or hundreds of thousands, what, whatever the case may be, wherever, the, wherever we look at in time, Jesus's body is functioning all across the world. And that's, that's a, a huge difference. And it was an important and a necessary act that, that we change. Backing up just a little bit, you know, that passage in John, um, if you, uh, how can you love God who you cannot see if you don't love your brother who you can see? I, I, I've used that as, uh, as uh, an important text for non-resistance, and it doesn't often get considered that way. But it's really relevant to what Jesus is saying about loving your enemies and why that makes sense, and why not just it makes sense, but that makes us the children of our Father which is in heaven, because we recognize that our fellow man, even if he comes against me, even if he's hurting me, even if he's my enemy, is still the image of God. And when I'm able to see that, then I can call myself a worshiper of the true God. But if I don't, if I can attack my fellow man, I am attacking the image of God. And we see that from, from the beginning. Once again, I think we can connect this, and if you, if you lay out um, the entire biblical narrative, it's not just starting with, with Jesus. All of these notions go back to the garden. They go back to even Noah. Like When he's making this covenant with, with Noah after the flood, he's specifically telling him not to shed the blood of another man. And he actually gives the reason. He says, because... In the image of God, I have created him. That, in other words, you know, you go back just a little bit in the story before the flood, and it, it actually says that the earth is filled with violence, and and it's right after um, God purifies, washes, makes new, and Noah and 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 his family, the righteous, rise to the top, being saved through the water, as Peter says. And it's and he it's like he's reestablishing what he created in the garden and saying, human beings, humanity are made in my image. Don't shed their blood. Do not harm others. That's not what you're created for. And I like the way that Paul says it in the epistles. He says that to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. And that's that's a present action that's mm-hmm. supposed to be a a visible witness a manifestation of who God is which once again is it was supposed to be Israel's story they were yep. supposed to be the called out covenant people who are reestablishing God's blessing and, and actually we actually you could put it even in this narrative that it's it's God working through Israel to bless his enemies who have rejected and abused him and walked away and God's calling a covenant people to bless his own enemies i think what i would say is that there are indicators prophetic indicators throughout the whole history of God's people that show these places where God has an intention. Abraham is Abgoyam, the father of the nations. You know, a Goy in, is, is an outsider by the time the first century comes around. It, it is in Hebrew in general, but, but these outsiders have a father in Abraham, but the Hebrews think he's exclusively theirs. Um, there's these other pictures, you know, with Rahab coming into the people of God and with, um, Ru- with Ruth and Naomi. 
there, there's all these pictures. I'm fascinated, you know, Solomon dedicates the temple as a place for prayer for all the nations. But then when we get to the first century, Gentiles are excluded and kept out. And there's this big gap between Abraham being the father of the nations and Solomon dedicating the temple as a house of prayer for all nations. And this kind of like this uh, a proto intention in the Hebrews to be this light for the whole world is all dimmed by the time you get to the first century. And they're so exclusionary and so isolated and so closed off. And Jesus can say that, that you cross land and sea to make one proselyte and you've made him 10 times more a child of hell. Like there's, they've lost it. And that seems to be the stage in which Jesus steps on and recaptures all of that imagery and pours it out and, you know, blesses the Gentiles for their faith and responds to all these people. You know, they're the ones he's impressed with. There's all this stuff happening to recreate what God's intention was that was lost in Israel and cast it in its new light in Christ. That sounds great. That's very inspiring. And I love the idea of challenging the narrative, confronting the brokenness of the world. How do we take this from a big picture idea to our neighborhood? We don't want to be heady Christians. We don't want to have just ideas. We want our our theology to be meaningful. We want it to be practical. We want, so we're doing all this talk about, you know, being the hands and feet of Jesus, being the body of Christ. And I think that that has to get to the, to the granular level of what does my life mean in regards to that. And what it means is, is a million different things. That's, that's the idea that greater works than these shall you do. What, what, what are the places where my neighborhood is broken? What are the, what's the access that I have to make a difference? Now, there's a few different ways to think about that. You know, I think that we are supposed to cultivate these ideas in our heads and in our hearts through the Word of God. That they're supposed to be, we're supposed to see ourselves in this redemptive light. That it's our place to, to bring healing to the world not just healing, but also to be the example of what God... Here's how I think of it. God's intention in the gospel is to remake humanity into what he wanted humans to be. He wants us to be like Jesus. And for me, what's meaningful, I, I hate to be more heady with this, it does get practical, but what, what it means for the, the concept I use is logos. So Jesus is the logos, that's translated word from Greek, the word of God. And what, what that means conceptually is that God had an idea of what perfect, the perfect man was, What's the full range and capacity of what a man can be? And it was Jesus. He's the ideal expression, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Like he's the picture of what he wants the human race to be like. And we're working to be that. 
with his grace and with his power and with our skills and abilities to be that. So as the, as the representative of the Logos in our communities where we live, where are the broken places and how do we push into those broken places and make redemption possible? So uh, where's the homeless community where I live and what can I do about it? How do I involve myself in, in, in the things that aren't working in the world around me? How do I find access to people who are, who are in desperation? Uh, I think that the, the church here in Kampala is a fantastic example of this. Um, there's a ministry here, His Image Ministries, where you know one of our sisters took a heart for the for the holocaust that's happening in abortion and i'm just going to take a moment to to share that you know because this is an ideal example of what it means to be logos as the church to be representing logos so our sister gets a burden for the holocaust of abortion and she's not content to to just try to pass legislation and get representatives that'll make it illegal, namely because here in Uganda it is illegal, but it still happens all the time. So that doesn't work. So what do we do? So our sister puts together uh, some volunteers. They start talking to people, having conversations, figuring out what, where are people at. In, in the student population that we have access to here in Kampala, what do people think about abortion? Do they understand what's happening? Do they understand the principles of life that are involved with, uh, with pregnancy? And how can we help? And so now by this time, that ministry, His Image Ministries, is is taking in women who are prone to abortion, who are considering abortion, counseling them, talking with them, providing for needs where they can see them, where they can meet needs, whether it's for medical care, whether it's working out conflict in relationships with family, whether it's working out conflict in relationships with the father, the child, you know, maybe the father wants an abortion and the mother doesn't. All these dynamics are the the church here is is getting in the middle of this conflict they're recognizing this is broken and wrong and we're going to do our level best with the grace of god to try to make a difference and and we we who who work here in kampala know we see these little babies around us who would have been victims of abortion and are now living and functioning you know beautiful Beautiful Ugandan babies who are alive today who would have been dead without the church's work. That's how we do it. And what's interesting about that is that, as you said, I mean, abortion's already illegal in Uganda. And so a lot of people would, or a lot of even Christians, would step back and say, well, my job's done. I, I, I've, I voted or I helped to get that legislation passed. So what more do you want from me? What would be your response to, to people who would, who would maybe be inclined to that way of thinking? Yeah, I think this is a real rubber-meets-the-road kind of issue. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about it. Um, you know, we, we preach about it. We have a whole debate uh, on the Followers Way website about civil participation, uh, Christian participation in civil structures. And, and it's a real interesting arena to, to discuss and talk about what is, is there a difference between uh, 20th century and 21st century Western democracies and the Roman Empire that the church is born into? Um, do we have a different kind of responsibility 
to the state than the first Christians had, than Paul was talking about. But I, I guess my challenge would be, what's the fruit? Where has Christian involvement in American politics gotten us to date? Now, I grew up in a very religious, uh, politically conservative home. And I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty politically aware person from, throughout my lifetime. And I've watched how the, um, the moral majority rise to power and, and then hold its you know, dominant hand on, on influence uh, in, American, in the American political realm. And where has it gotten us? You know, the same, the same group of people who was talking about family values. Uh, here's, here's the perfect example to me. The same people who were decrying the immorality of the Clinton administration in the Monica Lewinsky affairs, who were saying this, this denigrated the office of the presidency and there was moral outrage by the moral majority in America during the Kenneth Starr investigations has now elected Donald Trump. And I, I, I don't want to make a whole lot of commentary about that except for to point out the hypocrisy of that group of people who cared so much about morality during the Clinton administration and cared so little about morality during the Trump administration. And those kinds of things the world sees. And, and the, the critique that, that the world has against especially Christianity in America is that we are, we are obstinate, power-hungry, money-hungry control freaks that are going to force people to listen to us and do what we say is right. I think that more and more people outside the conservative religious right think of American Christians the way they think of um, Middle Eastern Islamic states that they're just trying to use the levers of power to enforce their religious will. And this is going all the way back full circle now to where we began our conversation, talking about conserving and redeeming grace. The levers of power are not the churches to wield. That's not our job. That's not how we operate. So trying to come full circle with the question here, we don't the, the time, money, energy, and emotion wasted on political activism, if we could take that time, money, and passion and pour it into actually trying to make a difference in people's lives, we would be so much further ahead in America as the Church of Jesus Christ than we are under the Trump administration having elected him with an 80% majority among evangelical Christians. There's a tremendous amount that can be accomplished when we truly understand that Jesus is a real king with a real kingdom, and we are called to be his citizens. And as citizens in this kingdom, when we simply obey and just put Jesus' teachings into action in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, then we can start to see the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, this is our Lord's prayer that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Well, thank you, Matthew, so much for taking the time and being with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm at your service. I'm happy to, to uh, have conversations with you whenever it, whenever it works. Well, before we end today's episode, we've referenced Matthew 25 several times. I think it would be a great opportunity to go ahead and read that passage right now. It's going to be Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Hope you have enjoyed this two-part interview with Matthew Milioni. If you want to connect with us, you can do so on Instagram at podcast by our love. You can also email us at by our love podcast at gmail.com. If you have ideas for future episodes or suggestions, feel free to send us a message or an email. 